I want to commend you for sticking out our program. Um, I like to say Sabbath is 24 hours. I mean, what's the rush, you know? Let's just hang out. And let's have a good time in the Word. You know, um, I think we mentioned earlier that we take kind of a three-pronged approach with, uh, through our ministry. We want to inspire you. Have any of you felt inspired so far? That's number one. Number two, we want to enlighten. Are you feeling enlightened, educated? Are you learning anything new? Um, well, this program, Dispelling the Myths, I hope will be very enlightening. Uh, this is kind of a, a new program for me of back, um, well, when we were in Berrien Springs back in April or May last year. I was given this book and I was told, we want you to do a program on this book. I said, never heard of it. <laughs> so I had to read it, and they wanted me to do a biblical approach uh, on the subject of this book. This book is called Unclobber. It's rethinking um, our misuse of the Bible on homosexuality. So... I thought, well, this could be really interesting. And I found it to be a fascinating book to read because I was taking notes on just about every page. Nope, no, 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 as a Christian, that can't be, that can't be uh, presented this way. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I want to launch into this because this book is filled with the myths that... Are, well, it's one thing for the world to be caught up in the myths regarding the LGBT issue. It's another thing for the church to drink the same Kool-Aid. And that's what's happening today. The church is drinking from the wrong fountain. We need to be drinking from the fountain of life, from the Word of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to share with others what you have shared with me through my study of your Word and through the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit. We pray that this will be a blessing, that everyone here will, uh, in the end of the day, go home much more educated regarding an issue that is plaguing the whole world. You've told us in Luke 17 that, as it was in the days of Lot, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man shall be revealed. Father, we acknowledge that's where we are. The whole world is becoming Sodom and Gomorrah, and we need to be faithful and to be faithful, we need to know the difference between myth and fact, between lies and truth. So bless us in our study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope I can do a presentation. This needs to be up in my face, actually. Well, no, there it is. It is in my face right there. We want to look at God's word. The Bible calls God's word the way of life. Do you see that? Proverbs 6, verse 23. The, the word of God is the way of life. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. I, I really appreciate that in the Conflict of the Ages series, the first sentence of book one is God is is love, right? The last sentence of book five, God is love, ending the great controversy. We want to establish that right up front, that we know that God is love. Whatever comes from the word of God comes from the heart of love. Now, there's tough love in the word of God. We have 
you know, Second Timothy, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be, whoops, there's that word, perfect, <laughs> truly furnished unto all good works. So from that text, we know that God is love, and yet in his word, there's not only teaching, but there's reproof, there's correction, there's instruction. And as I used to be a child, I understand what reproof means, and I didn't always enjoy reproof. But I look back on it, and I thank God for godly reproof where I needed it. But God is love, and his word is for that uh, that purpose. But not only this, his warnings come from a heart of love. And even his punishments come from a heart of love. I was reading the other day in Jeremiah, and I was reading a couple chapters. And, of course, I was down with my pneumonia, and I was in a kind of a state of spiritual depression anyway, because I was so sick and brain fog. And I had to say, Lord, I do not appreciate these two chapters. I mean, this leaves me really disturbed that this is what you are telling God's people, your people, you're going to do to them. And I said, I know you're a God of love, but I just, I just want you to know, I don't understand this. This is just beyond my comprehension, but I know you're a God of love. I had to let it go, but there are some really tough things in the Old Testament. But if we always remember, they come from the heart of a loving father. There's a reason for those texts. We may not understand at first, but if God is love, do you think he's homophobic? Phobic means fear. Of course, we have thrown around the term uh, hate speech. The Bible is being referred to as hate speech. Uh, there are gay Adventists that have no problem saying, neither do I condemn thee. But if you quote, go and sin no more, that's hate. I said, Jesus said it. Well, then only he can say it. Well, then only he can say, neither do I condemn you. Come on, let's be consistent, right? But the, they will now pick and choose. And if they like this phrase, oh, that's love. If they don't like this, that's hate. And we Christians are supposed to be very careful that we don't use the word of God in, uh, where those, those statements can be referred to as hate. But, you know... I'm not homophobic. Are you homophobic? Are you afraid of gay people? Do you hate gay people? No. I coined the phrase homo agopic. You know, I come from the gay community. I know what it's like to live in a life with a perception of rejection. I know what it's like to be starved for acceptance, for affection, for love. And when I left the gay life behind, I left behind people that I loved, friends that are in the gay community. I, I tried to communicate with some of them to show them the word of God. And uh, what I got was heterophobic, I think. <laughs> I mean, the hate that came back to me from these people that I loved, I was shocked. But I still love them. So I say I'm homo agopic because I think God is homo agopic. He loves gay people. Would you agree? God loves gay people. He loves them too much to not warn them. Reprove them, correct them, instruct them in righteousness. So, in James, when I left the church, I remember as a young person, again with my degree in theology and all of that, 
And I remember thinking, I am so worn out with thou shalt not. I'm just tired of thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And I thought when I left the church and left God, it was kind of like a sigh of relief. I am no more burdened by these restrictions. Years later, I discovered that the Bible says that the law is the law of liberty. Now think about that for a moment, the law of liberty in James. And there again in James chapter 2, again refers to the law of God, the law of liberty. Now, and I like, again, I like that text, come now, let us reason together. And I like to think logically, and I think, now, if I sought freedom from God's law, I was seeking freedom from the law of liberty. And if I am free from liberty, where am I? <laughs> I left behind the law of liberty and plunged headlong into bondage, rejoicing all the way that I'm now free. I was free from liberty. You've all seen or can imagine the picture of this huge elephant with a long chain attached to his leg and then he's staked into the ground over there. You know, as long as that elephant wants to walk in that circle, he's free to do so, right? But the moment he hears the call of a nice little female elephant out in the jungle and wants to go that direction, what happens? He gets yanked back. It's then that he discovers that he's in bondage. And that's the way I was. As long as I, you know, was going in my circles of iniquity, I felt free. It was when I tried to break loose and come back to God that I realized it was impossible for me to do so without divine intervention. Um, I had left behind the law of liberty and I was living all of those years in bondage and never even realized it. This passage in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10 was a pivotal passage in my experience as I was studying and coming back to the Lord. I had gotten to the point where I actually did go uh, ask to visit this pastor uh, to just, I just wanted to tell somebody about my experience, see what kind of a reaction I got. And I had heard of this pastor. He lived over in the next community, uh, Cherry Valley, California. And I went to see him and I told him who I was and what I was dealing with. And, and, and this is a guy, he was so controlled. Now, in his youth, he was a redhead and he was a, uh, a fi had a fiery temper and all kinds of things. I, I heard his story and, and uh, when, when he went through this week of prayer, he was under great conviction at one of the academies, and he went to the speak for the week of prayer, and he said, Pastor, I just don't know how I can be good the rest of my life. I mean, look at me. I mean, this is just who I am. I just don't know how I can be good the rest of my life. And the pastor said, well, Ralph, you don't have to be good the rest of your life. I don't. No. Just be good today. He... He simplified it, and it clicked. And of course, we know that that's through the power of God and all of that, but the idea was, don't think about tomorrow because then you're going to get stumbled today while you're looking at tomorrow. He had a fascinating testimony. He became a great evangelist and is responsible for thousands of baptisms and everything. And anyway, he's sitting there as I'm telling who I am and everything, he's just sitting there, kind of bats his eyes once in a while, doesn't interrupt me or anything. 
And finally he said, Ron, when I stop talking, <laughs> Ron, let me show you this. And he turned to this passage and he read it. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that nailed me more than once. And then he read the next verse, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the spirit of our God. And then he just sat there and looked at me. This man was a man of few words. He knew how to use words. And he was using the word of God and letting it speak for itself. And he's letting it sink in. And you know, I was in marketing and I learned that when, you, when you're asking for the sale and a signature a decision, the first one to speak loses the contest. So if the buyer speaks before the seller, then he's going to sign on the dotted line. But if the seller cannot stand the silence and then tries to add some more information, he just bought the product back and he loses the sale. And Ralph was, Pastor Ralph was doing that. He just sat there waiting for me to speak. <laughs> I couldn't stand the silence. And then once again, open mouth, insert foot. I just blurted out something so stupid. I said, that's not what it says. You made that up. Oh boy. That was the wrong thing to say to Elder Ralph. He said, no, Ron, I didn't make it up, but I will read it again. I didn't need him to read it again. I got it the first time, but he read it again. And then he came to, and such were some of you. Notice what Paul was writing in that passage. That church, he's not listing every sin he can think of. He's in prison. He's picturing church members. And he's thinking, that one used to be an idolater. That one was a fornicator. That one was an adulterer. That was effeminate. That was abuser of himself of mankind, you know, gay. Um, and, and he's going through, I just see him picturing faces as he's writing that letter. And then he's praising God. Such were some of you. You, in that congregation, used to be these things. But praise God, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So when he read it again, then he just turned the Bible around and pushed it at me. And he said, now, Ron, you read it. Now, I had to read it. Three times I sat there and listened to this. You know, I ended up taking a stand that very night. I didn't go there to take a stand. I, I just was looking for information and needing to talk to someone. And that text was so pivotal for me that homosexuality could be a thing of the past. Do you see that in the passage? So let's look some thoughts about this book. The author is Colby Martin. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. He was the pastor in some other denomination. But because of his stand, he, um, uh, he got terminated as a pastor in that denomination. He started his own church. So today he pastors an interfaith, non-denominational church. In other words, a church that doesn't have solid biblical standards, I guess. But um, he, um, I'm going to talk about 
why he wrote the book here in a moment. But this passage is so important for us, the Seventh-day Adventists, Hosea 4, verse 6. My people, God says, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We, in Coming Out Ministries, we take this seriously. We don't know everything, but we certainly know a lot about this issue, which means we know a lot about the sin issue. We've learned a lot about overcoming sin and the power of God and the plan of salvation. But God is lamenting, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And there's so many Christians that don't want to hear it. They don't want their mindset to be unsettled with truth. They don't want to um, be shaken in, in any way. But notice the next part of that passage. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Friends, that is a very sobering warning. Do you see that? Because you have rejected knowledge. So when we look at these issues today, and we look at the scripture today we're going to look at, we have to make a decision. Uh, it may be a tough one for someone here, I don't know. Are you going to accept the word of God? Are you going to grow in your knowledge? Or are you going to reject it? And here again, um, I quoted already 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it was given for a reason. Uh, if you go to church and you're not willing to be taught, that's doctrine, if you're not willing to be reproved, corrected, or instructed, then why bother? Why are you going to church? Why are you studying the Word of God? I had an elder in my church in Arkansas interrupt my sermon one day. And it's hard when someone interrupts your sermon. It's hard to stay on track or get back on track. But he insisted that he needed to be heard. And I had apologized for possibly stepping on somebody's toes with something that I had just stated. And he said, Pastor Ron, I want you to know and the church to know any day, any Sabbath I come to church and my toes are not stepped on, I feel cheated. And I said, Amen. Isn't that good? If you do not have your toes stepped on by the word of God, then maybe you need to really, you know, look at yourself a little bit more closely in light of the word of God. Because every time we read the word of God, can we not be reproved, corrected, instructed in righteousness? So in 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16, talking about our beloved brother Paul and all his epistles, Peter says, in which are some, about his epistles, in which are some things hard to be understood. I don't know about you, but I agree with the Apostle Peter. Have any of you ever found the writings of Paul hard to understand? Even pastors, right? It's true, the guy must have had his PhD the way he writes. He has trouble finding a place to put a period at the end of a sentence. He does a whole chapter, it seems like, and then he puts a period at the end of it. I mean, the guy is so deep and so intense. But I'll tell you what, if it were not for the writings of Paul, I would not be here today. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and God can give you discernment even in the writings of Paul. I love the writings of Paul. Did you know we have theologians in our own denomination now saying the, a lot about the writings of Paul do not apply to us as Seventh-day Adventists today? And in, including in that statement is the writings of Moses. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the very text of Scripture we're going to be looking at today. Uh, if... 
if it disagrees with what you want to believe, then they don't apply anymore. And this is coming from, I'll just say, a West Coast theologian uh, that we've heard and seen on screen. Um, but he says there are things that are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, you know, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So this is what we're going to be looking at today, this book on unclobber. It is the twisting and wrestling and manipulating of scripture. But Peter says, if you're doing that, you are unlearned and you're unstable. And then Second uh, Thessalonians talks about them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. God is a gentleman. He's going to allow you to have what you want. If you want to be deceived, he'll allow you to be deceived. But if you love truth, he goes on to say, who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you love truth, I am thoroughly convinced God will make sure you're exposed to it. If you love truth, you'll be exposed to redeeming truth, enough truth that you can um, be and spend eternity with him. So that is one of the things we have to think about. Do I love truth or do I love a lie? In uh, Great Controversy, page 521, very powerful warning here. Whenever the study of the scriptures is entered upon without a prayerful, humble, teachable spirit, the plainest and simplest, as well as the most difficult passages, will be wrested from their true meaning. And then she's talking about papal leaders, but it's no longer just papal leaders. We can just say leaders, period. Select such portions of scripture as best serve their purpose, interpret to suit themselves, and then present these to the people while they deny them the privilege of studying the Bible and understanding its sacred truths for themselves. Then she says the whole Bible should be given to the people just as it reads. When I read that, that settles a lot for me. Does it for you? If you come across a text where someone's trying to do what I call exegetical gymnastics <laughs> to prove a point, rest assured that person is trying to sell you a, a bill of goods. We're to take it as it reads. And we learn later, unless there are signs and symbols, then we, we take that differently. But otherwise, the whole Bible should be given to the people just as it reads. Does that not, is that not reassuring that we can go to the word and we don't have to be confused by the word of God when it comes to salvation issues? Take it as it reads and accept it digest it, assimilate it, let it become a part of you. It would be better for them not to have Bible instruction at all than to have the teaching of the scriptures thus grossly misrepresented. The author of this book, the Unclobber book, talks about in the early part of the book, when he was a little boy, maybe a young teenager even, he and his buddies, um, enjoyed playing, uh, not playing, but using the hot tub or the jacuzzi of this lady that lived across the street from them. This lady was very nice. 
Only he talks about how she was such a good person. She was a lesbian, but she was a good person. She was so nice to them. And I think people confuse the word nice for good. They're not the same thing. Because um, he, he wrestled with his concept growing up that God would not allow someone as good, he says, as this lesbian to be in heaven. Just because she was a lesbian. She was a good person. A nice person. And he, throughout his life, then he tried to reconcile the Bible to accommodate the goodness that he saw in other people. Like this lesbian woman across the street. But the Bible says there, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none good but one that is God. And, and I read that, and then I, I, I read that because I want to stress this, this, this observation. Nice people can be evil, right? A good person would not be evil, but nice people can be evil. There are a lot of people that appear to be very good, but what is in their hearts? Why are they so nice? Why are they so generous? Why are they so friendly? There are all kinds of motives for a person to be nice. Selfish motives for self-glory, for self-advancement, to win an election, to be outstanding and, you know, looked up to in the community. There are all kinds of reasons for people to be nice, but nice does not equal good. Am I right? Do you understand what I'm saying there? Because the Bible says there's only one good. And if we want to become good, then we have to pattern ourselves after the one who is good and who promises that he will work in us. Now, the author's methodology in this book, I found to be very interesting. He's a pastor. He's a minister. And I was amazed at his methodology. He wrote this book with an agenda. He went into his study with an agenda. He already had his mind made up what he wanted to believe uh, when he did his study. He was looking for loopholes and way to just justify everything that he wanted to believe. And there's that term. I, I made it up, but I probably didn't. Someone else probably beat me to it. Exegetical gymnastics. Pastor Rob, you know what exegesis is. I don't know whether everyone else does. Exegesis is the method of interpreting scripture. I think I'm understanding the word. Is that right? <laughs> so I said exegetical gymnastics. When I read this book, I thought, my goodness, I'm going to be turned into a pretzel just trying to follow his reasoning. It was just so bizarre to see how he reasoned. He approached scripture to find what he wanted. He was on a quest to make LGBTQ acceptable to the church. And this is what he said. I want the LGBT people to hear in church. You are loved as you are. Is that true? God does love us. Uh, but he, he loves us where we are. But I don't know that he loves us as we are. I would try, still try to sort that out because if he loved us as we are, then why is he constantly trying to change us? See, transform, be transformed. But he wants them to hear you are loved just as you are. In other words, you don't have to change. By God and by me, the Bible does not condemn them. Their spot at the table is open. So he starts out making that statement and now he goes about to prove it through the word of God. 
but he makes a statement first. His practice was to interpret scripture in light of today's culture. But we know as Christians, we should be evaluating today's culture through the lens of scripture. Can you see that these are opposite approaches? And this is happening in our own denomination. You need to be aware of that. And, and we should not be surprised either because wouldn't our denomination be the number one target of the enemy? But if we're interpreting scripture through the lens of culture, then what is our rule of faith and practice? Culture. If we're evaluating culture through the lens of scripture, what is our rule of faith and practice? Scripture. It's a total opposite approach. And he speaks of these six passages of scripture. He says we are dealing with cultures and languages thousands of years removed from our own. And we are looking for answers to complex questions that in many ways are unique to our time in history. What verse in scripture is not thousands of years old? He says in these six passages, we're looking at cultures and languages thousands of years old. The whole Bible is thousands of years old. Do you see how flimsy this statement is? I mean, to me, I look at that and say, wait a minute. God is love was written thousands of years ago. So I, I don't get his point. Well, I get his point, but I don't agree with his point because I think that could be said of any and all scripture. And then he has these foredrawn conclusions. He puts out his conclusions before he ever presents his study. He, uh, he does, in other words, he makes these statements without any documentation. He doesn't give any biblical or scientific uh, explanation for the statement. He just states homosexuality is not a sin. In other words, I said it, believe it. Not God said it. Homosexuality is not a sin. He says Jesus never addressed it. Now tell me, did Jesus ever address homosexuality? Think about it. Where did Jesus address homosexuality? In the New Testament? No. But isn't the God of the Old Testament that wrote the Ten Commandments on stone with his finger and gave all of this counsel in Leviticus and all of that, wasn't that Jesus? The same God that wrote the commandments in stone wrote the sins in sand. Isn't that neat? The stone is eternal. The sins can be blown away by, God, by forgiveness. But he said Jesus never addressed it. Then he does not understand who Jesus is. He does not understand the God of the Old Testament. That it was Jesus who addressed these issues. And there are texts in the New Testament that address it too. Not Jesus specifically, but other scripture. But Jesus absolutely addressed this in the Old Testament. Then he says the LGBT is natural. Are, these are natural or normal inclinations. I heard that once again. And please, when I, when I make these statements, please don't think I'm being critical or judgmental. I'm concerned about things that are happening in our church. And I went to a seminar uh, years ago. It was held at Andrews. It was not an Andrews seminar, but it was an addictions seminar. And I thought, well, you know, I came out of a life of addiction. Homosexuality to me, to me was an addiction. So I went to this addiction seminar 
And I was surprised at what I found there. But there was one breakout session I went to. And the lady that was doing this breakout session, she kept talking about, you know, sex addiction. And her husband kept interrupting, telling about how he's been in recovery from sex addiction for the last 20 years. And I think, if I was his wife, I would not want to be standing up there giving a presentation with my husband constantly interrupting, talking about his sex addictions. <laughs> so that disturbed me. But then she kept talking about how masturbation, uh, the way she talked about masturbation, it sounded like she was saying it's an acceptable alternative, safe sex. I finally raised my hand and I said, can you clarify something for me? You keep using the word masturbation and, and the way you're using it sounds kind of favorable. Are you suggesting that masturbation is okay? That it is an acceptable alternative? And uh, she said, well, now, Dr. Jocelyn Elders has declared masturbation to be normal human behavior. Does anyone know who Dr. Jocelyn Elders is? You don't remember. She was the Surgeon General under President Bill Clinton. <laughs> she decorated her Christmas tree with sex toys and condoms and just all kinds of perverted things. She was a very perverted woman. And here this Adventist um, therapist is talking about how, well, Jocelyn Elder says it's okay, so, right? It's normal human behavior. I left that place and I went home and I couldn't get that out of my mind. And the very next sermon I wrote was normal human behavior. What is it about normal human behavior that we need to be proud of? Isn't normal human behavior fallen, broken, it's, it's carnal? And I went through the Bible and I listed all of these incidences of normal human behavior. Just because something is normal and a normal inclination does not mean it's right. We are a fallen race of people. We really don't know what normal is. What normal was created to be is not where we are today. And then he has this conclusion that the concept of sexual orientation uh, was completely foreign back in the Old Testament Bible times. I don't think so, because way back in the days of Moses, this whole thing was being addressed. And very, very strongly addressed. Um, uh, another one, the born gay, he says that people that are born gay are exempt from scriptural condemnation. And he says, today we know that homosexuality is a sexual orientation from birth. We know, he says, but he doesn't give any documentation uh, to back that up. He just says, we know. The thing of it is, science, and we'll, I'll just talk about that later. Let me just hold off on that. Another one that he says is loving, committed, mutual respecting gay relationships are exempt from all scripture against LGBT. Well, he's just saying there that there is scripture against LGBT. Did he not just contradict himself? Because he's basically saying the Bible doesn't address it. And now it is. But he's saying, but if you're a loving, committed relationship, then it's okay. Um, so let's look at this concept here. Born gay, exempt from scriptural condemnation. Where did that idea come from? Let's let the science speak. There are two distinguished scholars from Johns Hopkins University. And I mean, these are very, this is very current. And um, it's uh, uh, Meyer and McHugh. 
And they did this extensive report after years and years of study, coming to the conclusion that there is no gay gene. So this is true science. Uh, they repeatedly brought that out. And they state that people that, the idea that people are born that way is not supported by scientific evidence. The hypothesis uh, that gender identity is a, an innate fixed property of human beings that is independent of biological sex, that a person might be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body is not supported by scientific evidence. See, now we're looking at science. I mean, this isn't from the Bible. This is science. And science is supposed to be looking for truth. And when they establish truth, and truth is the same as fact, correct? Facts are facts. Gravity, the law of gravity is a fact. And I don't care what you believe. You better accept the truth about it or you're going to be in trouble, right? And so truth and fact are the same thing. They are unalterable. Now, who are these two guys? Dr. Lawrence Meyer is an epidemiologist trained in psychiatry. Uh, he is a professor of statistics and biostatistics, or was, at Arizona State University. Dr. Paul McHugh is arguably the most important American psychiatrist of the last half century. Does that have an impact? I mean, does that not indicate that their study could be pretty, uh, very legitimate? But what I'm showing you here is just basically some conclusions of science. There have been the identical twin studies uh, that have shown if one identical twin is gay, uh, and if this is a genetic issue, then what percentage of time should the concurrence be? Or what is the concurrence that the other one would be gay? They have the same DNA, right? So shouldn't it be close to 100%? It's only like 7, 7.7%. Very, very low that both identical twins are gay. And the, the reports are saying that these identical twin studies alone have pretty much debunked the whole concept of uh, gay genetics. And that's just one kind of study. So where does it all come from? Back in 1985, these two gentlemen, Marshall Kirk and Dr. Hunter Madsen, uh, got involved in this. And look at who they are. We call it the born gay hoax. It was invented by the, a gay psychology major, Kirk, and a gay uh, Dr. Hunter Madsen, who is a, uh, had his PhD in politics. You see the two key things there, psychology and politics, and they're both gay. And they hatched this hoax, because up until 1985, there were no claims of, of people being born gay. It was considered to be a mental issue. I'll just say a mental issue. In fact, some call it a mental illness, but it was a mental thing. And I, I agree with that, because the Bible says that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. These are mind things. But they decided, not just them, but their community decided that uh, they wanted to convince the world that people are born gay. Uh, and they wanted to force this on the citizenry of the country and upon the churches. And I'm going to kind of race through this. But 
they, they learned that if they could make a compelling case that they were born gay, they could become eligible for minority status, legal minority status, as a suspect class under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Okay. Um, they wanted to piggyback on the Civil Rights Act. So, the Civil Rights Act recognizes minority status only for those groups who, number one, have suffered a long history of discrimination. The gay community could say that. You know, they, they were persecuted. They were treated horribly. You know, in my lifetime, in the early days, number two, they are powerless to help themselves as a community. And that was true, too, because the contrary to the numbers that are projected out there, the, the percentage of the gay of the population that was gay was always maybe around 2%, 2 to 3%. But even gay Adventists try to say it's 10%. Therefore, if we have 23 million Adventist members, that means 2.3 million gay people are in the Adventist church. And that's how they draw their conclusions, not realizing that Christians are probably less likely. There are gay Christians, they call themselves Christian, but they're probably less likely to be going in that direction than the community that has no moral uh, standard to follow. But they were powerless to help themselves as a community and they could check that box. The third criteria was they had to be born that way. They said, aha, we're going to have to work on that one. So they went to work. They wrote books. They um, they decided to go through media, the movies, uh, music, uh, uh, every possible venue out there to get this message out that we were born this way. And their method was, if we say it loudly enough, long enough, frequently enough, eventually it will be bought by society and even by the church. And when we have a Q&A period, I'm just going to preempt it right now, we always get that question. What about those people who are just born gay? It always comes up, doesn't it, Michael? What about those who are just born that way? So we're kind of preempting that right now. If the question comes up, we have an answer. So if you want to ask the question again, we can answer it. But we're hoping that this will help a lot. Uh, Michael already shared this, this uh, clip from Camille Paglia earlier today. Uh, was it last night? Anyway, um, about and she's a, a lesbian, a gay activist. She that I respect her. We respect her. She's honest. She's gay, but she says it's not homosexuality is not normal. No one is born gay. It's an ad adaptation. It's not an inborn trait. Um, she chooses to remain gay, but she also says that people who want to go a different direction, you know, it's a worthy aspiration, and they should be given, the, you know, the uh, the freedom to make their choices just like anyone else. A study published in the peer-reviewed journal of human sexuality found that sexual orientation can be changed and that psychological care for individuals with unwanted same-sex attractions is generally beneficial. Research has not found any significant risk of harm. So when you hear all of these accusations about our ministry, and people like us, that you're, you're causing young people to commit suicide and all of this. I see, wait a minute. You're blaming the gospel for suicide? Because that's what we're preaching, the gospel. These people probably are suicidal before they hear our message. And how many? We heard of one recently um, that heard our message 
and she was suicidal. Where was that, Michael? Where, do you remember that one? Recently, there was a lady, uh, someone that came. Was that GYC? Oh, that's right. When we had our, our coming together live conference back in November, there was a young lady who called in the next day and said, I am so thankful for your ministry. Last night, I was ready to commit suicide, and I tuned into your program. Something to that effect. And she is alive today, right? Our ministry is working to prevent suicide, not to cause suicide. Uh, but the key phrase, you see the key phrase, it's easy to see because I highlighted it. Unwanted same-sex attractions. Many gay people have unwanted same-sex attractions. I was one of those being raised a Christian. I didn't want to be gay. I finally just accepted who I was. People said, well, you're making bad choices. That I didn't choose it. I'm just accepting it. Well, duh. What's the difference? Right? I chose to accept what I felt I was. And I didn't realize all those years I was telling people, I just accepted who I am. I was admitting that I had chosen. <laughs> and then, too, think about it. If you are gay and you are shown that there is another way and there's a way out of it, don't you have to make a choice? Are you not confronted with eternal realities and a why in the road of your journey? And you have to make a choice. So you may claim you didn't choose to be gay, but are you choosing to remain gay is a question. But unwanted same-sex attractions, there are many gay people that have those unwanted attractions. I had a friend of mine when I was in the gay community who came to me and he was so distraught. He said, I wish I wasn't gay. I'd give anything to be gay. I wish there was a way out. I didn't choose this. I, I wish there was a way out of this. And here I was in the world, the gay community myself, a degree in theology and no answers for that young man. I didn't have answers for myself. What could I say to him? And there are many people like that. And we see them. They contact us. They want our help. They want out, and it's a noble aspiration. Um, again, Camille Paglia, that's already been quoted this weekend. But look at God's plan and promises. He says, except a man be born again. I mean, you may help, you may help someone see that we're not born gay uh, because of um, you know, what we learn in Scripture and all of that. But if a person is still convinced that he's born gay, then just giving the invitation that Jesus gives to every one of us, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then just four verses later, he says, marvel not. Why are you so surprised? Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. I mean, it's like everyone needs to be born again. That same invitation can be for those, um, our loved ones that are convinced that they were born gay. They too can be born again, just like any other Christian. Uh, the other foredrawn conclusion here that I wanted to spend a little bit of time on was about loving, committed, mutual, respecting gay relationships being exempt from all scripture against LGBT. And this is such an interesting study. And yes, it was, it was made a long time ago, uh, but it's still a good study. These two men that were in a relationship themselves, a homosexual couple, one was a psychiatrist and the other psychologist. Isn't that a neat combination uh, for a couple. My goodness. Um, I just picture them constantly trying to analyze each other uh, in this relationship. But anyway, they, they were um, searching to locate. And in their search, they found 156 male couples. 
in relationships that lasted from 1 to 37 years. Two-thirds of the respondents had entered the relationship with either the implicit or the explicit expectation of sexual fidelity. See that? Two-thirds of these people, over a hundred of these expected when they went into their relationships, they'd be faithful to each other. I felt that way in all of mine. I don't know whether Mike did or not, but I, that's what I was looking for. I wanted to be like married. I didn't want to be promiscuous and all of that. And, um, but out of that group, how many do you think uh, declared fidelity? Only seven. And notice, none of them had been together more than five years. And that's seven, they claimed fidelity. But I even questioned that. But based upon that study alone, their study would seem to indicate that sexual fidelity, um, monogamy in the gay community doesn't last beyond five years. Can you see why I'm saying that? Their study didn't show anything beyond five years uh, towards fidelity. So... The author of the book is spending, you know, time talking about these loving and committed relationships and, and God should be okay with that. But isn't he overlooking a ton of scripture when he does that? Uh, in this study, outside affairs were, um, were very important to keep some couples together. They agree to have recreational sex and then that keeps them together because they're not locked into that bondage of fidelity. Um, when it comes to the issue of gay marriage, and this was uh, done before the Supreme Court ruling, but the, you know, a lot of these activists are coming out openly and declaring their whole intention about gay marriage and these loving relationships. Um, their goal was to redefine the institution of marriage completely. Uh, it wasn't about getting equal rights. They want to radically alter an archaic institution. Uh, this is a very prominent um, gay activist, editor there. And Masha Gessen is another one. And she says that fighting for gay marriage generally involves lying about what we're going to do with marriage when we get there. The institution of marriage should not exist. What we want is not compatible with the institution of marriage. And so the truth is really coming out as these activists gain more and more credibility uh, on on the world front, they're openly talking about how their end game is to destroy the institution of marriage. Who created the institution of marriage? God. And was it not a sacred institution? I have another study I call The Devil's Test Run in which I show that as Satan is seeking to redefine marriage through legislation on a global basis, and he is, then he knows as he succeeds at that that it is time, the time is ripe to redefine the other sacred institution out of the Garden of Eden through legislation on a global basis, and that would be the Sabbath. So, friends, we have to realize where we are in the overall scheme of things here. But God spells out his plan for mankind as between one man and one woman. We're all very familiar with that in Genesis 2, and also Jesus quoted the same thing again in Matthew chapter 19 that his plan is for fidelity between one man and one woman. And uh, everything else is a counterfeit or a perversion. Um, and it's designed to destroy, as Mike so, says so eloquently, the image of God 
in man. Um, another of his conclusions, God loves you just the way you are. And we've talked about that a lot already, that no, he loves you in spite of the way you are. That's why he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and we can become new creatures in Christ. These are texts of scripture we've looked at this weekend already and about the new birth uh, consisting of new motives, tastes and tendencies and, and a genuine conversion, changing both hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong. These are just such powerful things that the Lord has given us as Seventh-day Adventist Church that were so helpful to me in my journey. Uh, the author comes up with some interesting terms. He talks about people who are oversaved. What do you think about oversaved? I'll tell you what, if I was drowning in the sea and I was rescued, I would never claim I was oversaved. Would you? How can you be oversaved? And what are oversaved people? They are too religious, too focused upon one's faith. Too eager to share that faith with others. Oh, you must be oversaved. As if that is a bad term. And this is a pastor. Do you see why this book just really has no credibility with me? Uh, he talks about how our churches and Christians should become inclusive, open, and affirming. And what does that mean? Bottom line is we need to ratify. We need to accept homosexuality. We need to affirm them in their lifestyle and in their culture as gay Christians and just as we would anyone else. He says, no matter who you are, you are a loved and accepted child of God and may you have eyes to see that everyone around you is also a loved and fully accepted child of God. We know as Seventh-day Adventists that acceptance with God is conditional upon an entire surrender of the will. It's just logical. Here again, it's logical. If you want to apply to uh, admission into Andrews University, are there conditions for you getting accepted? If you want to stay in that whole program for four years or whatever, are there conditions for you remaining in the program? Country clubs, jobs, careers, whatever. There are always conditions that, that go along with things that we aspire uh, to be a part of. And it's only logical that there are conditions to becoming a Christian. And one of the main conditions is discipleship. You're entering a school of discipleship, which means you have to surrender things you, that you discover are not in harmony with the master that you are emulating, that you are disciplining under. This is just logical English uh, to me. So God... Um, God does love us, but he expects us to surrender ourselves into the curriculum of the school of discipleship. So where does this all come up with? I, have any of you heard of Alberto Rivera? Uh, he was a Jesuit. He became a Protestant, I think an Anabaptist or something. And for several years, he was singing like a canary about his experience as a Jesuit infiltrator, a Jesuit spy. Um, I've seen him on videos. This is a chick publication. It's not an Adventist publication, but his whole testimony is spelled out 
in this Chick publication. It was not made for Seventh-day Adventists. It's made for Christians across the full spectrum. You may be shocked to find out some of the things that he said. Uh, his experience was in espionage. Uh, he was in ordered to um, join the ecumenical forces under Pope John the Twenty-Third. Protestants were no longer to be called heretics, but separated brethren. Communists were no longer our enemies. And then they classed people, the believers, in a one-world church, non-believers in one-world government. And um, the conclusion of the leaders in this movement state, our masterpiece is the third force, which is the charismatic movement. This is the bridge to Rome. Those Protestants have accepted us with open arms. We have successfully infiltrated all of these organizations. He's got a whole list of them there. And then he says, thanks to our undercover agents, we have quietly moved into Christian TV and publishing and have been accepted as teachers, pastors, and evangelists. We are pushing only love and unity to pull us all together. This is our revival. Do you ever hear these love and unity messages in our own denomination? Love and acceptance, love and unity. Do you see where it comes from? It's a way of unifying the Christian world, the world period, under one religious leader. Love and acceptance. There's no discipleship. It's just love and acceptance. And then I read a little bit further in his testimony, and I was absolutely blown away. Alberto Rivera says the first Protestant groups they moved on were the Seventh-day Adventists and the full gospel businessmen. Would that surprise you? That tells me we must be on the right track. If we are the number one target of this program, there's a reason. We're the ones that can expose it. We're the ones that have the answers to the beast and his image and the mark and the number and all of those things. Why wouldn't we? I, I would kind of be uh, disappointed if we were not number one myself because it only makes sense. But here it is, openly he states, the Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, and full gospel businessmen were the first groups we moved on. Then into the Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, etc., until they were all infiltrated, including the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. All the seminaries, universities, and colleges were next. The Jesuits directed Catholic action, Legion of Mary, Knights of Columbus, and pulled it off. Um, this to me was so revealing. Friends, this is why we have to be Bereans. Everything we hear, we receive with all readiness of mind, but then what? We search the scriptures, whether those things are so. And I tell people, don't be looking for Jesuits in every pulpit and behind every tree. Just study the truth, and the counterfeit will be very openly manifest if you know the truth. Um, the disciples were brought together in unity in faith, in doctrine, and spirit. The author uses some interesting terms. I won't really go into those, the name and effect, posture shift. I will talk about posture shift briefly. The books that we're talking about, the Guiding Families book that's been distributed from the elements within the NAD, it's posture shift. It's trying to get the church to shift its posture to become affirming to the gay community when we should be helping the gay person shift his posture to come into alignment with the word of God. 
You see, again, it's opposite. It's an opposite approach. And that book has been sent to every educator and I think every pastor in the North American division. And it's now going around the world to English-speaking languages, countries, and being translated into other languages. And it says across the top, Adventist edition, which means it's not an Adventist book. It's an Adventist edition. This one was prepared for Adventists, but it's written by Bill Henson. I always want to say Jim Henson, but I think he had something to do with the Muppets. And I get the two confused. But Bill Henson and my wife and I went to one of his programs in Florida just so we could see for ourselves what was going on. We were so shocked and so disappointed that this was being pushed upon the entire Christian community. And it is being very strongly pushed into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So that's why um, Wayne Blakely wrote his book, Line by Line. And I was approached by people from every level of our denomination saying, we need a book that's a biblical approach to this issue. And we came up with, and I wrote, Navigating the Storms of Contemporary Sexuality, Identity, and Love. Interesting, across the top, I wanted to make sure people knew it was biblical. So across the very top, and you can't see it there, but it says, guided by the word of God, by true science and research, and by the voice of experience and reason. So that's all in there. And then it was later in my devotions, I was reading a, a passage somewhere uh, from one of the devotional books that Ellen White had written. And I came across his statement that the word of God is found in scripture, in nature, and in experience. I had never heard that before. Have you? We all know about scripture. We all know about the second book, Nature. But she said, there's a third book, and it's experience. The word of your testimony. And I said, my word, I, I, that's what I have on the top of that book. Because I use scripture, science, nature, and the voice of reason and experience. It was so affirming when I read that in the devotional. But, um, but this book is a biblical approach to this posture shift movement that is really taking hold in our own denomination. He talks about the holiness code that the book of Leviticus was written for the priesthood, so it doesn't apply to you. So when you read in Leviticus that a man should not lie with mankind as with a woman, it's abomination. Oh, that's only if you're a priest. If you're not a priest, it doesn't apply. That's what he's saying. This isn't even logic, is it? It's not reason, it's not logic. The clobber text, and we can do this real fast. Sodom and Gomorrah, he refers to the author of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a storyteller. It's about gang rape and hospitality. I don't believe it's, li uh, I don't believe it's literal. Perhaps it's both myth and history, a mixture. He says, I don't believe. That's the clue. He says, I don't believe. And he's talking about the word of God. Shouldn't that be a red flag? He, and he just conjures up. It's perhaps myth, perhaps history, who knows. But the key thing is, I don't believe. The sins of Sodom. I went through the Bible and I looked them up. Oh, it's quite a list. And you can see the list there. You can look that up for yourself. But the one interesting one that I found that he leaves out. He doesn't even cover this as a clobber text. In Jude, uh, verse 7, I think it is. Yes, um, where he talks about them going after strange flesh. Well, why is that? How does that indicate gay or LGBT? 
when I was living in that culture, there was a common phrase that was used. I don't know whether, Michael, maybe you know, do they still use the term tricking? Um, tricking is a, a term that is used for people who are looking for a new flower every day, a bee fleeting from flower to flower, a new person, a new experience, so that every sexual encounter is a new one. And that way, every sexual encounter is like the first one. It's with mystery and, and you know, something new and fresh and what have you. Another term for that, and I don't know whether, never asked you, Mike, if you ever heard this, but I would hear people say, I'm looking for strange. Yeah, I'm looking for strange. There it is, Jude 7, going after strange. It's right there in the Bible. They don't even realize they're quoting the very character of Sodom and Gomorrah in their, in their practices of going after strange. Um, he refers to, uh, to homosexual, the, this behavior, as maybe a cultural taboo. Um, abomination. No, the word abomination refers to as a cultural taboo, not a biblical taboo. Wasn't it God that said it's abomination? It wasn't culture. It was God who wrote that or dictated that. <clears throat> and so he says that just because, because something is called a, an abomination does not mean in and of itself as, that it's sufficient reason for us in the 21st century to de declare it um, the same, that it's immoral or, or an objective offense. But <clears throat> can you see he's just making these things up? Nothing is based upon any solid uh, scripture or evidence. He talks about we need to stop using the ancient Levitical laws. Why? Well, and here, when he's talking about abominations, I just put a list together, and I'm going to just go through real quickly and just let you look. But these are abominations in the Bible. Homosexuality is not the abomination. It's one abomination. And if you look at this list of abominations in the Bible, and adultery being the last one that I put in the list, it sounds to me almost like sin is abomination. What do you think? Because <laughs> he's putting out a list of sins, but maybe... You know, if sin is a transgression of the law, it's impossible to list every possible way that you can transgress the law. But it looks as though to me God is spelling out certain ones to make sure we know these are in transgression of the law. And he calls them abomination. Doesn't mean these are the only ones or the only sins, but certainly. Uh, Leviticus, about not a man lying with mankind as abomination. Um, he concludes that these are just priestly restrictions. It doesn't apply to you and me. In Romans, uh, talking about the lusts of their own hearts, the, the uh, vile affections, even women uh, and men leaving the natural use of the woman, burning in their lusts one toward another, man with man. It dismisses all of that as a, a passage intended to expose Jewish prejudice and reconcile the Roman church. Where do you see that in that passage of Scripture? to reconcile the Roman church and to expose Jewish prejudice. I, I don't see any connection at all, but that's his conclusion. And then he says that, um, that these texts do not provide a blanket condemnation of homosexuality, nor give biblical grounds to condemn any and all same-sex acts. So right there, he's trying to justify any and all. 
that the Bible does not give any grounds to condemn any and all. And yet earlier he's talking about loving, committed relationships. So he's a little bit inconsistent here. And I'll tell you, when you deviate from the word of God, when you deviate from truth, there's no way you can be consistent. You will always end up being inconsistent. Um, he says about Romans 1 that it was culturally shameful for that day, but not the same for the culture of today. So do we think that today's culture has risen above the degradation of the culture 2,000 years ago? Or could we be following in the same path and even going lower? Uh, history shows that every generation is a little bit more degraded than the previous one. So his uh, assessment here is actually going against, uh, you know, the general history of the world, that every generation seems to be a little bit more degraded than the previous one. Uh, the text that I read earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, listing all the, these uh, sins that were in that church but are no longer there, uh, they're dismissed by the author of this book, um, a condemnation of engaging in same-sex prostitution and exploiting others in a sexual way. In other words, abusing power and privilege and selling oneself for sexual favors. That's his explanation. Uh, but there again, I really don't see any connection with what he is concluding and what the text reads, especially when we're told to take the word as it reads. So the author's conclusions basically are the same as his foregone conclusions. They're no different. He makes these statements. He takes scripture and he tries to make the scripture fit his statement. And then he does a section in conclusions and says, therefore... I was right. <laughs> Basically, that's a summary, a very short summary of what he says. Then he concludes that he was right in his preconceived uh, uh, foredrawn conclusions because the way he twisted scripture backs it up. He says consensual sex is beautiful and not sinful. It is a gift from God. Consensual sex that covers a wide range of what the Bible would call abominations. And he says it's a gift from God. That to me is almost like blasphemy. Something that God condemns, he says is a gift from God. It's, it's um, I'm very disturbed by that. Therefore, homosexuality and heterosexuality can be sinful. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Anything goes. Do you see that? Anything goes by the author, the pastor, author of this book. Um, and then he goes into being a gay Christian, and I have a whole sermon on that called the prefix Christian. Mike touched on it earlier as well, that if you put gay before Christian, you're putting gay before Christ. And you're saying, I'm a Christian except here, and this is more important. Um, I tell people, you know, when I left the gay community, I left behind uh, smoking and drinking and drugs and promiscuity and homosexuality. And I don't go around bragging about being a non-practicing pothead Christian, right? 
We don't brag about what we're turning away from. If God is delivering us from something, why would we pick it up and pin it on as a badge? I say, you know, you can tell people you used to be gay. That gives you some common ground with somebody. But if you say, I am a gay Christian, what kind of reinforcement is that? Uh, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And you don't have to be overtly practicing gay behavior to be absolutely, truly gay in your lust and in your thinking and in your attractions and what you dwell upon. And you can still be living it out like the rich young ruler I preached about this morning. He had not had sex with a woman, but evidently Jesus says you've got a real problem with lust and pornography (laughs) and probably self-sex, you know. But um, so you don't have to be practicing that with another person to still be fully homosexual in your mind, in your thinking, in your lusts. Um, this is something I wanted to really stress. He says, I can only imagine how it must feel for an LGBTQ person to come out of the actual closet, desperate to be seen, to be heard, to be trusted, to be accepted, and to be loved. Where's the focus? Who is the focus upon? The gay person. I said, wait a minute. I know someone else that fits this sentence better. So I rewrote it. I can only imagine how Jesus must feel desperate to be seen, to be heard, desperate to be trusted, desperate to be accepted as Lord and Master and Savior from sin, desperate to be loved. Now, isn't that a more, uh, what, profound (laughs) statement maybe? Should we not be more concerned about Jesus and his desperate attempt To save us for all eternity. If you love me. He says keep my commandments. The first statement is to focus upon self. We need to be focusing upon Christ. The author finishes his book. Basically with his statement. And Jesus said unto her. Neither do I condemn thee. (laughs) What's wrong with that statement? That's not the end of the sentence. And we've heard gay people say, well, if you say go and sin no more, that's hate speech. But this author uses that sentence, but he's not being honest with it. He says, Jesus said unto her, neither do I I condemn you. And that's where he ends it. He does not quote the next phrase, go and sin no more. Why is he afraid of that? He's a pastor. What's the point of being in ministry if you're not trying to help people find their way to Christ and eternal life? In my conclusion, I um, want to share this quote from Great Controversy 598. The truths most plainly revealed in the Bible have been involved in doubt and darkness by learned men who with a pretense of great wisdom Teach that the scriptures have a mystical, a secret, spiritual meaning not apparent in the language employed. Does that apply to today? When, that was written over 100 years ago, surely, right? A long time ago. Um, these men are false 
teachers. It was to such a class that Jesus declared, you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. And that's what's missing in that book. There's no power of God. <clears throat> With love and acceptance, but no power. And then the statement, the language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning, unless a symbol or figure is employed. <clears throat> Christ has given the promise, if, my, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. If men would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. And that makes me think of the possible thousands upon thousands of gay people who need to hear the truth and that would respond to that truth. Remember, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Are we not grateful that he is long-suffering, suffering long, not willing that any should perish? That includes the gay community but that all should come to repentance. God is love. Um, I hope that that will help clarify some things. The main thing is just make sure that you have that Berean attitude. Make sure that your belief is founded upon the clear word of God. Because wise, learned men, false teachers can lead astray. And obviously they are, this book is being made available free to any pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. And we can see that it is, um, it can be very dangerous. God is love, nothing is impossible with him, for he is mighty to save the whosoevers, from whatsoever, even to the uttermost. Amen.